I wanted to see, I knew this was like a simple song, even though it feels like it has different movements. Like it feels like it, it can have some complexity to it. This song is one chord. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where longtime friends and musicians get together to discuss a randomly selected album from Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. This week, we've been listening to the soundtrack to the movie The Big Lebowski. No, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I recognized a lot of these. (laughs) There there are a few on here, so uh, you're forgiven if you were a little bit confused. It's actually... Cosmos Factory by none other than Credence Clearwater Revival. Before we get started here, uh, let's kick it over to Rob and uh, see what we got in the old mailbag. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, excited to to dive into the old mailbag. We have a missive about a recent episode, and then just to tease it a little bit, we have some hate mail that I thought we'd Ooh, start reading. Okay, very so, excited. So the first epistle comes from Dominic from Oakland, and he writes, I'm listening to the recent Thriller episode. Just got to the part where you talked about Michael Jackson's conception of the bridge. And sidebar, I recall that Michael Jackson said that it was intended to be a break that made you want to go back to the main part of the song. A break from the monotony of the main part of the song that made it exciting when you went backwards and got back to it. The author goes on to say, that description reminded me of the song Jane by Jefferson Starship. A song that can pump me up like no other. At the 147 mark, however, they play a bridge that is so boring, which leads into a climb back into the main riff with guitar solo. I've always called it garbage time, since it seems to exist solely to create a void and make you want the drop back into the chorus all the more. Can we from now on refer to bridges as garbage time? I think... (laughs) I don't think I really like I'm not sure that was in... I like that anecdote, and and I had never heard that song before I did listen to it. I encourage you all to listen to it. I'll put it on the the playlist for today. I'm not sure I can really get behind a Jefferson Starship song all the way. Tom, our resident Jefferson Starship (laughs) aficionado, is not on the call today. But but yeah, I I do love the garbage time, and I love that it exists solely to make you like the main part of the song better. That's all. No, I I think that makes sense if you build enough contrast, give enough suck in order to then have a bigger payoff. I, I can, I can appreciate that. It's like going, going to the club with ugly friends, right? Is that you? <laughs> <laughs> right. And if you've never done that before, you're the right. ugly friend. <laughs> right. Oh yes. That, that hurts. And then just as luck would have it, a somewhat related, tangentially related piece of hate mail. Now this came in the form, not of an email sent to our inbox, but instead a review on a platform out there. I, I thought it'd be fun to read this because this person seems upset, but they managed to also reference Gl- Grace Slick, who was the lead <laughs> singer of Jefferson Starship. So the, mm, the headline yeah. of the bad review reads, it's a comedy show, exclamation point. Well, thank you. That's actually, I feel like that's a compliment, good, but good all right, yeah, good. go on. Statement of fact, right. they complain <laughs> and make fun of music while sounding like they know something about what they're talking about. And they get away with it because they're talking to a younger, less informed audience. If you're a boomer, and here's where I should note that they spelled your incorrectly. (laughs) (laughs) 
violation. <laughs> You'll hate the show. They're musicians, so you have your basic rock talk, and they do make some funny references. I like how he's panning us, but then he comes back and tells us right, like, funny. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're not too bad. <laughs> but they should stick to their own music. And then the, the and then the thing he cites, which I don't even remember this happening, must have happened a long time ago. If ever, if he's even talking about our show, he says panning <laughs> surrealistic pillow, which is an album by Jefferson Airplane, by a guy whose favorite band is Rush, says it all. Again, it's a comedy show. I think this guy might be reviewing a different podcast. <laughs> whose favorite have... <laughs> band is Rush? When did this happen? We didn't even review Surrealistic Pillow. <laughs> no. I think we should just start taking reviews for other shows. We'll go get a Joe Rogan podcast <laughs> and just read it and try to apply it to ours. They're crazy. They're on DMT. Three hours of yapping. Right. <laughs> I know all of us very well, and no one's favorite band is Rush. That's for sure. No, that and Surrealistic sure. Pillow, I, don't, I can't say I know it super well, but shout out to Embryonic Journey. I remember that was a little jam on there. Little un- underrated jam. Well, wait, so who's anyway, this, who's this younger audience we're speaking to? I feel like I'm old as shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like if, if you're younger than like 40 and you're listening <laughs> <Right>. to this, <laughs> thank you. First off, so tell look, all your friends. <laughs> please, please send us more of of your vitriol. We'll, we'll take yes. it. We'll read it. We'll we'll take it into our hearts and and let this be a reminder, guys, that we would love you to just jump on and review the uh, review the podcast, especially on Spotify. It's super easy. All you got to do is give us a quick star rating. It definitely helps get us out into the world. While you're recommending us to your friends, give us a rating. We appreciate it. I mean, how else are we going to spread the gospel of, of Rush without right. More, right. more followers? Man. Excellent. Good stuff. Well, let, let's keep that mail coming. All right. Let's jump right into some music here to give you a taste of what we've been listening to in the last week. Let's uh, get things going, guns blazing here with the opening track called Ramble Tangle. some taste for for what we've been listening to but a, a little different than some of ccr's other stuff but let's uh let's go around the room and introduce ourselves with a a quick tweet length review of this album uh let's start with you rob when the aliens come to earth and they ask what is this thing called an american rock and roll band <laughs> point them to Creedence clearwater revival this music is vital original timeless and fun. Oh, Rob's doing the end first. So right. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> We're voting first. Uh, it's a reverse Tuesday. I don't know. It is funny. One of the, just as a side note to that point, Rob, I, one of the interviews I saw with, I think it was the drummer. Somebody was asking him like, 
so how would you describe your music? And he just goes, uh, rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's kick it to you, Adam. Yeah. Hey, this is Adam. I've never actually listened to a CCR album from front to back all the way through. Mostly just the Forrest Gump soundtrack is kind of how I stumbled on CCR back in my formative years. But my review is that CCR's Cosmos Factory is exactly what I expected. And I'll leave it there. Oh, I'll leave oh. it there. Oh, uh, all right. Well, where's oh. he going? Where's he going? What was he expecting? Right. That's the question. Yeah. No, I think it's it's on it's on brand, right? I mean, they have a sound and they hit it. So this is Alan here. My tweet length review is who knew that the pioneers of a genre of music that would later come to be known as swamp rock were actually four somewhat square white guys who came from the Bay Area suburbs. Wait, not the Bay U? The ba- oh, it's <laughs> terrible. Uh, didn't cut that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hey, the sub 40 crowd will love it. <laughs> Wait a minute. So, okay. CCR, Creedence Clearwater Revival. You've heard of them. You know them. If you have turned on a classic rock station in your life, if you've watched any movie, particularly a movie from the Vietnam era, like you have heard <laughs> yes. this band. And this album specifically, so this was their, their fifth album of seven these guys had a really brief but intense career we'll go through some of those numbers in a little bit and like the impact this album specifically was released in july of 1970 but let let's go back a year to 1969 to just kind of talk a little bit about how they fit in to the bigger picture of music so i think you think 1969 you think I think it paints a pretty vivid picture of, you know, Woodstock, hippies, the music's really psychedelic, kind of jammy. You've got the backdrop of Vietnam, lots of upheaval, right? So I think that you can kind of situate yourself in that environment. The question I have, though, is how is it that the biggest band in America and perhaps the world at that time, at least in terms of album sales, and there are people that will, will claim that they were the biggest band in the world at that time, how could it be a band that was completely straight edge, specialized in super tight two to three minute songs, had virtually no vocal harmonies, and looked more like lumberjacks than rock stars? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. so to me, that was what struck me most in digging into this album was everyone knows Credence. I learned how to play guitar to Credence songs, you know, the basic sort of two to three chords, Tom Petty style, sounds great. But simple, right? And so they're so everywhere that I don't think I realized how utterly huge they were. I didn't really realize that either. And now that you're saying this, this is kind of some some good background. I didn't realize that they were ever considered like one of the biggest bands in the world. That's That's crazy to me. I mean, you know, not crazy, but I just didn't know that. I agree too, because I don't think they get their historical due that much. Now, even despite the fact that they are on every movie soundtrack, like Alan said, a couple of these songs immediately signal you that you are in Vietnam or you, that you are in the 60s, almost better than almost any other recorded music. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they were just so consistent for this, whatever it was, five years. They turned out so many hits that most of America and maybe even most of the world would know. And I'll just mention a personal anecdote. The first 
I bought some tapes before. I think I've mentioned before that Dr. Feelgood by Motley Crue was my first ever music purchase on cassette tape. But my first ever CD purchase was a Creedence Clearwater Revival greatest hits called Chronicle. Which I like how they added yet another tough-to-swallow word to their already <laughs> difficult name. But they stuck with the C theme as sure, well. Sure, so yeah. it's <laughs> Which, by the way, that album is still on the Billboard top 200 albums Get like, out. as of today. Which, there are some albums that are historic <laughs> and have still stuck around. But I mean, it's going on something like 600 weeks. Millions and millions <laughs> of copies of that album. Because there's like 20 hit songs on it, and a lot of bands release the greatest hits, and you're like, these, by the time you're getting to track 14, you're like, I'm not really sure if this could be considered a hit. These are all (laughs) hits. And then I think my perception in 1992 or whenever I bought that CD was that they had this much longer career to have spaced these hits out over. But the fact that they just released record after record after record in, what, a three or four year time span and then broke up, basically. That's crazy. Yeah, they so the reason I brought up, you know, 1969 was in in 1969 alone. And this was purely well, I think volume had a big part to do with this. They released three records in that year alone (laughs) in one calendar year. And in that year, in total, they outsold the Beatles. Now, it's wild. Context is everything. You know, that was at a time when the Beatles were, you know, sort of in a weird place and and on the verge of breaking up um, that was also the year that they had the the rooftop concert so a lot right. was really going on in music but yeah so obviously if you're putting out three albums in one year of you pretty much bangers you know let's let's face it they were in it they actually did play at woodstock which i didn't even realize they played at woodstock until i learned that not only did they play at woodstock but john fogarty who is the lead everything for this band <laughs> was so disappointed with our performance that he asked not to be included in the film or the soundtrack. Wow. Because apparently, I don't know if you knew this, he claims that they, well, they played after the grateful dead who they claim played until like three in the morning and put the entire audience to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that might've been the drugs. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> But well, and and you also mentioned it. So the these guys, their whole ethos, their whole approach to to music was extremely workmanlike. And so you know, I made a joke about them sort of seeming unfit for like this style of music that they ended up popularizing. But in a way, it fit them because it was they were just about the work and about making music, not fucking around. They didn't even play encores. Like that's how just into just doing their thing that they well, that's, were. That's why 50 minutes set, 13 songs in and out. Good night. Basically. And also that's the name of the record too. The factory is, is it's the rehearsal space. It's a reference to the fact that they, they're there ah. to work every single day. And I like, I wonder if part of that, one of the things that I was surprised to learn this week, doing a bit of my own research on them was that they had been around playing together as a band since 1959. So they were a little older. They, they had gone through a few different incarnations before they landed on this name. And of course, before they started making hit records. And it wasn't until after the Beatles came to America, for instance, that they, you know, sort of got their shit together and started started with this sound, let's say. But the fact that they'd been around a while, kind of Beatlesque, meaning getting getting tight as a band, paying their dues, 
And the other, the so and also maybe they were a little older than some of those other counterculture folks. I'm not sure of this. Probably not older than Jerry Garcia, but maybe older than people like Jimi Hendrix. You have to fact check that. I'm not sure, but it just makes me wonder if that it's like true Americana music. It's like because John Fogarty is much more of a country fan than he is a psychedelic fan. Let's say. Oh sure, and in fact, in listening to this album, I wasn't that familiar with with Ramble Tamble, um, which which we kind of led off the show with, and I I was obviously familiar with Heard It Through the Grapevine, but those two songs have much more like psychedelia than anything I thought their their catalog had, you know. Period, and you know, you raise a good point, Rob. That they they started playing in middle school, so. I feel like Adam, it's kind of similar if if you and Tom and Phil had started even sooner, right? And and just kept going and never stopped. What that tightness would do for the sound, even as you evolve and find different ways to change up your sound, the tightness is just something that you can't really manufacture. Yeah, and I think that really shows up in in this music. What's interesting though, I think overriding all this is is John Fogerty, right? So he you could sort of think of this band as John Fogarty with a backing band, They're, John Fogarty and company. <laughs> that's yeah. how he envisioned the yeah. band. Although when they started back in the day, they went through a few incarnations where actually John's brother, Tom Fogarty was, was the lead, but ultimately he realized that, you know, John had the more distinct voice and was, was probably better suited to be the front man. Holy shit. What an understatement, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> like, I listen, I've always liked this band, but it has been a while since I really gave them a hard listen. And this week, and I went back through their catalog as well, and I was just really struck by how unique his voice is. When I was get prepping or, you know, coming, coming down here into the studio, I was thinking that after this week, I have another person in like my top rock vocalist that I hadn't had in there before. Like this, we gave me an excuse to really listen to him and appreciate him. And I mean, on on the level of a Chris Cornell, on the level of Robert Plant or something like that. You know what I mean? Like these these monumental rock singers that I had just forgotten about. Absolutely, it's I mean, and I mean, just very distinct, but also just great delivery. And he he belted, man. Like he gave he gave it his all. And what I find crazy is if you listen to some, you know, he's been doing a solo thing for decades now they had a very uh, public acrimonious breakup which we can get into but even today you know decades later he sounds the same like he's not he's this guy that's dropping a key in order to fit his old vocal range like he's still he's still doing it and like yeah what what a voice i i think too he's someone that i appreciate now that i'm older because i think when i was younger i listened to him and i saw oh rock singer he's just like gritting it out if you just if you just push hard enough through your throat, I guess that's what you get. <laughs> no, that is not the case. And I know we're going to talk about it later, but the fact that they peppered their catalog sort of throughout their career with these covers of older R&B tunes, I, I just think a lot of times, even on this podcast, we make fun of rock and rollers for doing totally unnecessary covers. But John Fogarty is exactly the kind of vocalist I want to hear reinterpret tunes like this. That That's a great point because yeah so we'll, we'll talk about grapevine in a little bit but um yeah so they they had I, I think what came with that though the reason they 
were, were sort of uh, a flash in the pan is the wrong word, but the reason they, you know, kind of burnt out so quickly was that Fogarty was also a legendary sort of authoritarian of the band, <laughs> it, you know, in his mind, the band is not a democracy, which I, sh- I share that philosophy in general. There needs to be somebody that's leading, but he handled everything, right? So he handled all the business, all the music, all the production, the finances, which did lead them into a bad place where he signed a pretty terrible record deal with Fantasy Records, where he signed over all the rights to his songs to this record label, which ultimately ended up with this hilarious series over decades of them suing the shit out of each other, members suing each other, his own brother suing him, the record label suing him for plagiarizing himself (laughs) on a later song. For Creedence Clearwater Revisited. (laughs) Because he basically couldn't, the result was that he could not sing his own songs publicly for many years, right? Correct. I think it was like in the early 2000s that that maybe was lifted and he was able to do it again. But um, so I think because of that, the, the the backing band really resent had a lot of resentment because I think to them, they felt like, hey, we've been on this ride this whole time. You weren't even the front man when we first started. But his point of view, which is is the correct one, frankly, was that <laughs> I'm making all this happen. And and yeah. he even says in interviews, he says, I wrote the music alone. I did the arrangements alone. I did the mixing alone. They showed up to rehearsal and played the songs I told them to play and they wanted equal cut. And I just don't think that's right. Hell yeah, dude. I totally, well, I couldn't possibly agree with that sentiment more, <laughs> you know, which, well, I, which I, says a lot about me probably. I wondered, this is around the same time that Aretha Franklin was putting albums out from the wrecking crew down in Muscle Shoals. And I wonder just how similar it would sound if they just had the group of hired guns from Muscle Shoals fame studios just doing the backing tracks and Fogarty crushing it, you know? I see, but I, I maybe that would be definitely be cool. But they're not, the band's not lacking. Although I, I want to say that I learned just this week that John Fogarty also plays lead guitar. I know, I know Alan alluded to that, but I never knew that for the longest time. I assumed that he would take a break and just play rhythm guitar, but no, he plays all the lead guitar too. <laughs> it's all about me. I had that assumption as well. And you know, I think a, a quote from Tom Fogarty, who later quit the band, he was the first one to quit before they broke up a couple years later. He literally said something like, I'm tired of standing up here just strumming chords all day. And, you know, but again, like we could kind of go back and forth on this argument, but like without the songs, there is no credence playing Woodstock and selling millions and millions of, of records. Um, in fact, after they released this album, Cosmos Factory, which was this was essentially like the height of their popularity. So this this sold, you know, it was four times platinum, spent nine weeks on the billboard at number one. Right. So, I mean, this was like pinnacle of their success. He got so fed up after this of the rest of the guys clamoring for more creative input. And, you know, I'm going to play my songs. I want to sing my songs that he finally said, OK, the next album, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to play three songs. You play three, you play three. (laughs) And I'm not even going to play guitar on yours unless, you know, maybe I'll play like one line, but he, he basically said, let's draw a line in the sand. And the the album was terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I think it was two, I think it was, it was their officially their last album. So it was two albums later. It's called Mardi Gras. 
and I saw a review of it, and they talked about how, yeah, it was totally equal time. There are actually a couple good, pretty decent Fogarty songs on there. I'm not, I'm not, fuck, I'm not thinking of what they are. We'll, we'll pull them up. But I saw in the review, and it's, I went to check it, it said that Stu Cook, the bass player, has a voice that could peel paint off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love the way reviewers come up with ways to disparage people's voices. I'm jealous of that skill. Listeners, I will, I'm going to throw that song on there, and you're going to listen to it, and you're going to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, I need to hear the song now. <laughs> Especially as a fellow bass player. Okay, <laughs> Let, let's let's get into some of the the music here. Let let's pick back up with with the song. In my mind, this is a great CCR deep cut, not on a greatest hits like Chronicle. Obviously kicks off the record. And so meaning not everyone would maybe know it, but it, I, it's been in my head for a while. It's a very successful kind of jammy song. But that said, it's not totally meandering. I mean, it's kind of simple, but it has a lot of fun little rhythmic changes that keep me interested throughout. It rocks. The tempo even changes. I dig the title. I don't know, man. I just think they hit the mark with this one. Yeah, I, I noted that I didn't get bored, even though this was over seven minutes long. And I, I didn't really think of it as jammy because it didn't it didn't stay on any one particular part too long. They've got that ear, and I, we've probably seen it in plenty of the albums we've, rev- we've reviewed where folks know just how long to stay on something. And you kind of feel yourself getting tired of it, and then it goes to the next, like you said, rhythmic change or a chord change or something. And they... They they nailed that on this first tune here, and it's a great it's a great sample of the sound that you're going to hear on this album too. I had never heard this song, and that this was what I expected. So even though it's seven minutes long, it is indicative of their style, which is they get in and get out. They're pretty punchy. So you know most of their songs are clock in at three three minutes and change, but even this one, there was sort of a reason for it to be longer. Agreed. Well, I think you know back to to Fogarty his. Even the songs that had any elements of of jamming like this, it, it was not necessarily improvised. Like he, you know, back to being like this control freak, everything was arranged. I don't think it was necessarily like note for note, but you know, when how many you know measures to to hang on a certain part, when to go back in, like that was all arranged. And so, you know, but I but I think this song has a vibe of feeling like it's it's improvise it's jamming but that it's it's still very much in control like it doesn't feel like uh you know i forget what i forget if it was like new york dolls or one of the bands that we recently did where there was a they were like sort of hanging on by the skin of their teeth yeah, yeah. it was new york dolls yeah, oh yeah. yeah. this <laughs> like this the was opening like the track 
this is like the opposite of that where it's 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 rocking and you know but it's it's very in control and purposeful one thing that i found interesting about this song i'm not sure i agree with this statement but uh, a journalist by the name of Stephen Hyden called this the most rockin' song of all time, which it feels a little hyperbolic to me, but everywhere I went looking up the song, I came across that quote. It does rock. Like, it's it's definitely a rocker. It's one of the only songs that I've ever seen my son dance to while I had it on in the kitchen, so I think it's got that going for it. I, I read this think piece on Pitchfork, hated Pitchfork, that said that it, <laughs> it feels like this spurred a lot of what you would call indie rock jamming, which is not the same as psychedelic rock jamming. You know, they were talking about sections and pavement songs and stuff like that. And I think they were specifically referring to some of the, like the arpeggiated guitar part in Ramble Tamble. Cause this, this goes through a few different movements of almost song styles. Like the opening riff is kind of, it's relatively countrified, I would say. I mean, it's a fun little riff, right? But then they get to that part with the arpeggiated guitar where you, it could almost be a Black Sabbath song if it had more fuzz to it. It's funny that you mentioned those bands because I and I, I do agree with that. I think that's a good comparison. But in my mind, I thought that very first few licks were almost like James Brown esque, which, hmm. you know, maybe I wasn't that could be way off. But it's maybe. just what I heard when I first listened to it. The arpeggiated parts to me felt like. Were they trying to do, were they trying to get, I don't know when Abbey Road came out compared to this, but were they trying to do like the She's So Heavy thing? Oh, good call. You know, or like, I don't know, but either way, it's it's an interesting song. I Want You, She's So Heavy is another one of those songs that I I think set sail a thousand ships. Like a lot of bands listen to a tune like that and we're like, oh yeah, that's a whole band right there. Yeah. I, I think somebody should do uh, should take the intro of this song and then grab the isolated vocals from James Brown and just put it on top where he's just shouting out foods. Canned yams! <laughs> Chick, chicken bone! Neck bone! Like, that would be awesome over this. But my other thought was, uh, Alan, you said your son was dancing. This has that thing where when the there's a rhythmic change where they swap the downbeat and it kind of like sets you off kilter a little bit until he comes in, he sings, and then there's like one word where he hits and then the whole band comes back into a straight 4-4 four, four, and then it does that dun-dun-dun-dun. But they do it in such a, a a manner that the, yeah, the upbeat is switched every time. So you almost find yourself falling over as you're trying to rock your head to it, which I thought was super cool to do in your opening track on your on your album. No, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't I didn't necessarily pick up on on that part, but like it's... The subtleties are there. Because I was trying to count it. I, I, I was going, you know, one, two, three, and it was just throwing me off all week. And I still haven't figured out how to count it out yet. So Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, you know, I mean, in general, I, I will say the first time I heard that, I have heard it in the past, but wasn't like super familiar with it. I may have been biased that it wasn't one of their hits. And so maybe going into it, I, I wasn't expecting much. I wasn't a fan in the first like couple minutes. It this did take is a little bit more of a slow burn where it did take me a few listens to really kind of get get it. But uh, but yeah, I think it's a cool tune. I thought he he, he may also be predicting the future because he's a line in there where he says actors in the White House. I wasn't sure if he meant like bad actors or he was predicting Ronald Reagan in a decade coming in and being an actual actor in the White House. So need some context there. It's like the Simpsons. CCR predicted everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Speaking of uh, cool songs, here's a song that is does not fit into that category <laughs> in my mind. Um, spoiler alert. It's the song Ubi Doobie. 
should I say tutti frutti (laughs) (laughs) it's the only thing I could think when I heard this song was yeah yeah I mean it doesn't even seem like they believe in it at 207 (laughs) (laughs) like can we just get through this (laughs) that's a two minute song (laughs) struggling and and so what's funny to me I mean I I honestly wonder why they didn't cut the song because it didn't the album length didn't need it it's clearly the least strong song if I was looking at this track list I'd be looking at this title and I'd be going we already got a song called Ramble Tamble man (laughs) and that's a way better title just I'm not even listening to the tune yet just like it's a better title are you sure you want to put these so close to each other maybe they promised Roy Orbison like a decade earlier that like oh we love you man if we ever make it famous we're gonna do one of your songs and then it came to fruition I don't know it's like there, yeah I, it must be a paying homage thing I was thinking too based on the it comes in at 207 comment is that what makes it even worse is the very next song on the record also comes in at 207 traveling band but that might be the so best good. use I know. of the basic blues chords since at least Little Richard <laughs> yes it's so good. Well, that that's what's funny about this album is, well, two things. One, I think you we could talk about so many other songs on this album. This this album does contain several of of their hits that you know, you mentioned Traveling Band. Suffice to say, a number of hits, a number of singles on on, on this album that that you can sort of chew on. I think the other part of it though is this Rob, you mentioned earlier them doing covers so that you could hear Fogarty's his angle on it or, or his, you know, je ne sais quoi on it. But this is just, it doesn't, it doesn't really add anything. It's pretty much note for note from the original. It, it just doesn't feel like it's advancing, you know, and, and it's my only probably criticism of this album is it, it has a few of these just sort of clunkers that are really sandwiched in between otherwise amazing songs. It feels like you were so close to having the 100% singles album, like like we talked about with Thriller, yeah. and yet you just still had to throw in some filler. Because, yeah, Alan, to your point, yeah, so they, in terms of number of songs that the general public would say, oh, yeah, I know that song, Credence has so many of those songs, and so many of them are on this record. Traveling Band, Looking Out My Back Door, Run Through the Jungle, Up Around the Bend, Who'll Stop the Rain. Heard it through the grapevine. Long as I Jesus, can see the yeah. light. These are all what you would call hits. Like people will it's recognize It's a greatest them. hits album, essentially. It basically is. And the other thing I wanted to mention, I'm not sure I have the timeline completely correct, but I watched the Netflix Credence documentary, the documentary of their uh, their concert in London that's on Netflix. Was this the one that was and narrated by Jeff Bridges of all it people? It was. It was. Yeah, perfect <laughs> oh, narration. That's awesome. And one of the things they brought up I thought was interesting is that, I don't know if it was 1965 or 66, where because the band had already been going for a while, kind of slogging away without a real hit. And then Vietnam hit. 
and Fogarty and maybe one of the other guys enlisted in the army and went and served for two years. And during the period they were away, basically their hometown of San Francisco exploded in cultural relevance and in musical relevance. And so by the time he got back, I just got the feeling that he was like, okay, let's do this. We're poised. We have a band. We have some name recognition. Now I just need to start turning out hits. I wonder if that encouraged him to just bang away. And it kind of seemed like he said... Again, I'm not sure the timeline. If this was right after he got back from Vietnam, or or maybe he wasn't even in Vietnam. Maybe he was stationed somewhere else. I'm not 100 sure. But after he got done his military service, he came back, and one of the first big songs he wrote was "Proud Mary," another classic song, obviously. And then he's like, "Oh, at that point, I just knew I could write good songs." So then they just started pouring out of me, and Jeez. the evidence supports that they did. Oh, absolutely. No, I think your timeline is 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 spot on. In fact, that's where they got their their name, right? So I never I, I always thought the name had some grand significance. Like is this like a biblical verse or like what where did this name come from? The revival part was from so D- uh, Doug Clifford was the drummer. He and and John Fogarty both were I've seen conflicting things. I've seen that they were drafted, but I've also seen that Fogarty thought he was going to be drafted so he got ahead of it by joining the army reserves potentially and Clifford joined the coast guard reserves something to that effect but either way they they did some service probably didn't see a ton of you know combat but you're right they were away and and then San Francisco changed a lot in that time so that was the revival part of their name but the rest of it was Credence was just some guy they knew his name was Credence and then oh that's hilarious <laughs> and Clearwater was from an Olympia beer commercial where they referred to their beer as Clearwater. So there you have oh. it. What's in a All name? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely so, a mouthful. Yeah. I, I expected it to be a little bit more. Have more meaning, more. More heft. You know, uh, yes, right. More legend behind the name. I have one quick ooby dooby fact here. So th- this might be the start of a new segment called Super Geek. Super Geek, I'm super geeky. <laughs> so. Star Trek First Contact. There's this nondescript song playing in some saloon where Zeph from Cochrane, who creates the warp drive, is in the year 2063. This song is playing on the jukebox. So if you. <laughs> the Credence version? No, it's some, you know, milk toast cover version of Ubi Doobie. So Roy Orbison had a hit and uh, still, still cranking out there in 20, the year 2063. In the Star Trek universe, this so. was it. What's the What's the movie called? Is that First Contact? First Contact, yeah, yeah. See, we're giving something to the boomers. <laughs> we're, we're serving all, all audience terrible. segments here. <laughs> Feel free to cut that out. Whoever edits this, that's pretty terrible. <laughs> oh no, no, we're not cutting that out. That's gold. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you know, maybe it's bonus content. Who knows? But right there, you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, let's move on to the next tune, which is called "Looking Out My Back Door." Listening to Buffalo winds. Dude. 
love the song. I know that I've earned a reputation over the years as being a pretty cliche Big Lebowski fan. And, you know, I'll wear it. I'll own it, even though, you know, it, I'm not proud of my past. However, that movie 100% turned me on to this song. And if you've seen that movie, you know exactly which scene this song comes from. He, the dude's car stolen. He gets his car back. He's smoking and joint and he's, you know, banging on the ceiling, banging on the roof of the car, just as happy as all get out. And this song's playing and it's fucking great. It's a great song. <laughs> it is a great song. It's a surprisingly well-produced song is what I noticed on this listen through. Because again, I think in my head at this very superficial level, I thought of Credence as, as just a garage band, as a, as a jumped up garage band with good songs but no, there's a lot of production little tricks in this one. There's that steel guitar. There's, the, you know, there's the cool little dead string thing that he's doing, but it's like very intentional oh, yeah. how he's doing it. My uh, Rob, I will correct you there. It's actually a resonator because I remember hearing this song for the first time and asking my dad what that was. And he said it was a Dobro, which is an American brand of a resonator guitar. Uh, that's like the so, thing that looks like an acoustic guitar with a big steel plate in it. Yes, exactly. So you get this kind of jangly steel-ish, you know, garbagey sound, but it's really cool. Gotcha. Uh, and so, yeah, that this was the first time I think I'd ever heard a, a, a resonator in, in music. It's a great tune. And this sent me down a little wiki wormhole. Maybe Alan has more information about the Bakersfield sound that they were hearkening to here, which is like a it was a movement in country music, uh, particularly spearheaded by Buck Owens, who they yeah. reference in the song. And who I think we've already mentioned him on this podcast, but I don't I don't know Buck Owens directly that much, but I know that the Beatles covered Act Naturally, which was a Buck Owens song. Ah. Yes. No, I that's a, that pretty much sums up much more concisely what I came across as well, that it was a nod to that sort of old school country esque Buck Owens sound. Well I think it was I think it was intended they were saying that this this was like a West Coast production sound that that was more willing to incorporate electric instruments into country earlier versus what was still going on in Nashville at the time, which was a little more traditional and eschewed electric instruments, I guess. And a backbeat. It definitely stands out. Like it, it's, it, it seems like it's a little different than the other material on the album. And I think that that production probably has a lot to do with it. I think something else that probably stands out too, I think are the lyrics and these these are some goofy ass lyrics and what's funny is i actually for for a few years have have sang this song to my daughter who's 5 and at one point i stopped recently and thought like is this weird is this some kind of like acid you know flying spoons and tambourines and elephants and and i definitely had a point where i was like i should not be singing this song <laughs> to a 5 year old but then I did a little research on the, the song and everyone thinks it's about drugs and, and acid trips and shit. But it turns out he actually wrote this song for his three-year-old son and has been adamant that there's no hidden meaning. There's no kind of like subversive uh, context. It's just a goofy song. Yeah, I always assumed it was about getting high on your back porch as well. That seemed to check out to me, but I, I yeah. also read that. <laughs> That he's he's pretty straight edge. He's pretty adamant about the fact that it's just a Dr. Seuss esque parade. Exactly. I mean, flying spoon that could that could mean a lot in the uh, in the underworld. 
this song also has the, the distinction of being their fifth and final number two hit. So all the accolades we, we've talked about, as prodigious as they were, they actually never had a number one hit, but they had many number twos. I think they have more number twos than, than anybody. So this was their, their last number two hit. Came in second to the Diana Ross version of Ain't No Mountain High Enough. So I suppose, uh, you know, you take what you can get. <laughs> See, actually, I wanted to say, too, back to the drug trip thing, that I sort of liked it. I don't want to say I liked it more when I thought it was about a drug trip, but one of the things I noted before I read that it wasn't about that was I appreciated that it was a happy, fun, light <laughs> drug trip. Instead of the dark and mysterious white rabbit, that just feels so cliche to me to take it to that place if you were going to write about getting high. Yeah, I agree. That puts a much more pleasant you know, kind of spin on it than you know, the wall or, or whatever. And is more accurate to my drug trip. <laughs> we need a we need a sidebar on that. <laughs> All right. Speaking of uh, Big Lebowski tracks, let's let's run through the jungle, as it were. this week this song is only three minutes long holy shit they pack so much in i i thought that my like playlist had ended and they started playing a muse album i swear to god that the intro to this song is way <laughs> ahead of its time i mean totally soundscapey and does not sound like soundscapey for 1970 so fantastic job on this intro oh this intro was spectacular i i think i i read that the the bass player Stu Cook. I think I've finally dropped name dropped everyone in the band by this point. But I think he actually was doing some weird stuff like running a pick along the strings, playing some tapes backwards. But they they definitely wanted to simulate what it felt like being in the jungle, right? And um something else that <laughs> Rob, I I know I sent this around in uh our text thread earlier. I wanted to see, I knew this was like a simple song, even though it feels like it has different movements. Like it feels like it it can have some complexity to it. This song is one chord. (laughs) (laughs) Like I, I went and looked up the tabs for this just for shits and giggles. And it literally says chords D minor. (laughs) <laughs> maybe that's what got tom fogarty that, all pissed I, off just strumming one chord all the time right 
come on, man. Give me no, something. That was, surpri- that was surprising to me that, yeah, I, I agree. At a cursory glance at this song, it feels like, A, it's longer. B, it sounds like it's from the future still. Uh, C, it just sounds like there's a lot more going on than one chord. That's crazy. And it it reflects you know the ethos of their band overall, which is they use a lot of simple blues changes, but they seem to ring a lot of new life out of them. So here's another example, perhaps. Yeah, the the bass is what makes this song feel like it's going places, which is and it's Fogarty told him to do that. I was gonna have to say, <laughs> <laughs> hey boss, what should I do? This, give me your guitar. Don't do this anyway. Play this bass while I riff on harmonica for a while, which that was him playing. If uh, that wasn't clear, he does it all, man. He does it all. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, this, this song is killer. Like and again, not not because of the Lebowski reference. Which, if you are into the movie, this is a song I think that's playing when Walter and the dude are going to deliver the briefcase full of underwear. You don't think you you know you know. Alan. <laughs> oh, I think well, maybe I, I need to I need to uh, couch it at least. But yeah, this is despite that obvious connection. This is probably my favorite CCR song. I think it just has. It's just very vibey. It it has a nice groove, and it just it just sounds really cool. The other thing I found interesting about this was it's not actually about war, which you might think. Run through the jungle. This was right when Vietnam was going down, but it's a it's just about the proliferation of guns, like in America. Huh. That's really that simple, and that was another thing that I really came away a bit surprised about and also surprised at their popularity in terms of the other bands at the time where I think they, they had stories, they had songs that had some meaning, but they weren't trying to overcomplicate it. They weren't trying to, you know, be like super poetic. It was just, here's just a simple story that I think a lot of people will like (laughs) imagine that. (laughs) I mean, and it works clearly. That harmonica solo, again, with them knowing how to, sorry, with John Fogarty, knowing how to break up the song, break up the monotony at just the right spots, that harmonica solo comes in, and again, it kind of tricks your brain into like, oh, things are happening here, so I don't get tired, and it's only three minutes long. I heard they originally brought Bob Dylan in for that harmonica solo, but... uh... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure him and Fogarty got along great. (laughs) You know, two uh, two lightweights there. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our final track that we're going to talk about on this album. It's a song uh, you may have heard of before called "I Heard It from the Grapevine."
Yeah, so I mean, they have this history, CCR, of doing cover songs. They did, I think one of the first hits they had was with a song called Suzy Q, which is, was an old song. And then they did a version of I Put a Spell on You that's pretty iconic. In fact, Phil and Tom and I covered it in the Chop Days, had a great time with it. And now here we are with I Heard It Through the Grapevine, most famously done by Marvin Gaye. I think there's a lot of style and fun in this song. I don't think this is as successful as the I Put a Spell on You cover, personally. Just in terms of reinventing the arrangement. Doesn't sound crazy distinct from Marvin Gaye to me. Like, it's a little bit of a toss-up if I'm wondering which one I want to listen to. But I still think they get their style across. They, They sound like they're having fun. I really noticed him on the guitar solo in this one where I just I was like, oh man, he's not even doing that much. He's kind of sticking to the melody, but he's still putting forth a lot of stylistic elements that I appreciated that make me feel like it's a real unique human being behind that guitar. Coming into this week, I wasn't sure. I knew that they had covered this. I think I probably heard it on the radio once or twice. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it, actually sitting down and listening to it. And this one grew on me over the over the course of the week. The first time I felt it was kind of unnecessary. Yeah, I thought, you know, it basically sounded like the Marvin Gaye version, but it's a long tune as well. So, but sitting through it five, six, seven times, it grew on me. You know, I, I think the, the jam went a little, a little meandering, uh, but yeah, it, it's a cool tune. I, I think it, I think it's a good song. Yeah. I, I actually grew up thinking this was the original version. Like this album played a lot in my, well, I don't know if it was this album, but just CCR in general played a lot in my house growing up. So I didn't really know that this was a cover. So then when I listened to the Marvin Gaye version, the first time in my life, I was sort of like, oh, come on. Like they really just sort of wholesale did the song and did an 11 minute version. But I think they do a pretty good job with it. I definitely question why it needed to be. Uh, was it 11 minutes? Is that where it was? Yeah, 1107 clocking in. For an album that's only 40 something minutes long to, to sort of take up like a quarter of the the real estate seems a little much. And and even Fogarty, I think later admitted that in retrospect, it was probably a bit too long, but again, I think he puts, he puts a nice spin on it. He, his voice works perfectly for the record. And, and Rob, I, I think I agree. Some of those, some of the guitar work is just really tasty. And even though it does vamp forever, it, it doesn't necessarily feel like that, you know, I mean, you know, it's a long song, but, um, they actually, I don't know what the length was, but this, the long version actually got some radio, you know, airplay, which seems kind of surprising for, for a song like this, you know, being that length. But um, yeah, it's kind of haunting and vibey again, all arranged, you know, so not as much of a jam as you might think, but yeah, um, that that's funny. Cause I, I had, when I first listened to it this week, visions of going back to college and we've all been in jams like this where you just keep playing the same thing and you're kind of looking around like okay who's going to take it next like where where's it going to go and nobody does it and then like three minutes goes by and you're like okay we're still doing the same exact thing what happens next and nobody takes the lead you know what i mean and it's just another three minutes goes by you're like oh my god we've been doing the same thing for 15 minutes let's just stop so see maybe if you guys had a foger uh, you're right he would just whip your asses <laughs> yes. into shape you, you needed rob is what you needed yes. <laughs> Adam, go to the one now. <laughs> sir, yes, sir. All right. Well, I think the only thing left is for us to to render a verdict on, on this album. Let's go around the room and put our thoughts out on 
whether you need to listen to this album before you die. Let's start with you, Rob. Yeah, it's an easy yes for me. I think this is an absolutely classic rock and roll band. There are so many of their classic tunes on here. And and actually a good variety of what this band was capable of. So if you only had to listen, if you're only able to listen to one Credence record in your life, this would be a pretty good way to get their vibe. You got stuff like Run Through the Jungle and Travel and Band. We didn't even mention maybe my favorite song on the record, Who'll Stop the Rain, which is more of a folk oh, tune. So good. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they're a must listen band. I do think they've been weirdly forgotten. By history, maybe it's because they have a hard to remember name. Maybe it's because Fogarty wasn't able to tour and play the songs for so long. Not sure, but they deserve a lot of do. And the truth is, you already know more than half of the tunes on this record. But give the deeper cuts a listen. Yeah, I again, I I made a tie back to Aretha Franklin at the start. I'm going to echo it. It's taking simple songs, effective melodies, and a voice of of one-of-a-kind vocal talent to elevate those songs. And you got the same thing in John Fogarty. He is a monster talent vocally, one that I didn't really truly appreciate, I feel, until this week. Uh, so this album is amazing. Like you said, it's a greatest hits crammed in here. So it's a it's a definite yes for me. So well done, gents. Or uh, gent. <laughs> <laughs> John. Kidding. Kidding. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an obvious yes for me as well. You know, I... I posed the question earlier, you know, how, how does a band that seemed so out of step with the times, you know, how do they become so huge and so popular and, and, and essentially forge a, a, a new sound that really wasn't, wasn't happening at the time. And I think it's because it, I think it's also the same reason that they've been a little bit sort of lost in the shuffle, which is that they, they wrote music for the masses. And I think sometimes that gets that's frowned upon if a lot of people like your music. Hey, Nickelback are amazing. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me of that. You're right. Fogarty is probably going to mine the internet for us talking about him and comparing him to Nickelback. And so you know, maybe we'll retract that. Yes. Now. <laughs> Cut that, Rob. But, you know, I think they were just making honest rock music that a lot of people liked and you know it are the lyrics like historically significant not really you know i don't think they're in that same vein as like your, your bob dylan's and people that were you know more like social critics of their time but this album has a, kind of a little bit of everything there there's times where it really rocks there's times where it's you know poignant there's times where it's goofy there's times where it just sets a weird vibe it's probably their best album but i think more importantly to me it's it's this music has like stood the test of time you know like it sounds old but it still sounds good and i think it still sounds kind of fresh and so yeah i think it belongs on the list and you know because i sorry one more thing to throw in onto the praise pile which is the cover is a picture of their rehearsal space which i like i just love behind the scenes stuff with bands so the fact that they they did the cover art at the rehearsal space directly is funny to me. And also the fact that they have that song Travel and Band, which is on my playlist of songs about b how being in a band is actually not all it's cracked up to be, which I love. What what else is on there? Just give me one or two other ones. Well, you, well, you got It's a Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll by ACPC. Uh, yeah. You got Sultans <laughs> of Swing by Dire Straits. Yes. You got Super Trooper by ABBA. Yeah, it's a good mix. Yes. Nice. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Digging it. Digging it. All right. 
Oh, funny. Another funny anecdote about the cover. That photo was taken by yet another Fogarty. I want to say by the name of Bob. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth a guess. That's probably. Yeah. (laughs) So there you have it. All right. What do y'all think out there? Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? Let us know again at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Give us some some fan mail, some hate mail, anything in between. We will take it. Don't forget the Instagram feed as well at uh, the Chop Unlimited. It's kind of our, uh, what are we calling it? Our production house. All kinds of great stuff. Great content out there. Posting lots of clips, old and new, from the show. Little little snippets for you to peruse while you're while you're on the toilet. Yeah. So if you don't want to dedicate yourself to a full episode, go hit up Instagram, find a little nugget that you might like, a little a little something to, to wet your palate there. While, while you're on the toilet from <laughs> eating that uh, beef and cheddar with curly fries. <laughs> Listen, ghost beef satisfies, guys. It does. <laughs> <laughs> on sale now. All right. So the only thing left is to uh, figure out how we're going to spend our next week. So let's uh, kick it over to Rob to spin the old albinator. Okay, yeah, with Tom out this week, he's giving me the the keys. I'm going to go rev this engine up on the old Albinator and get it spinning right now. And drum roll, please, what we'll be listening to next week is... Stereolabs Emperor Tomato Ketchup. Wait, wait. <laughs> Stereolab? I've never heard. That sounds like that's not the NPR show. Also, that's Radio yeah, Lab, right? That's Radio. <laughs> These guys also okay. served in the Coast Guard, I think. Right. No, <laughs> I feel like uh, the Flying Spoon should be on this album. Somehow. No, I've actually I've heard this one before. This is a French band from the nineties. It's 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 vi- okay. it's very different. It's it's very it's less organic. Let's say it's it's uh, if if we were on one end of the Garage Band spectrum this week, we're going to be on the other side this this week. Oh, all right. Okay. Stereo Lab. All right. Yeah, it's 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 a change of pace from uh, Cosmos Factory, no doubt. Oh. But it's it's chill. I'm not familiar with this album, but I've heard the band and and it, it's pretty chill. Yeah, well, we'll I just remember that back when John and I were roommates and we were poor, we used to listen to some Stereo Lab. I don't know if the track is on this one or not. Where it was like a seven minute slow built jam, and then it and then this French woman sang something that we interpreted as "fuck yeah." Again and again. I don't think she was saying that, but we used to really get hyped to that. Well, I got to try to find that now. All right. All right. It sounds like a, a good time is in store. Can't wait to, to check it out and to check it out with you all. So until next week, I've been Alan. I've been Rob. And I'm Adam. Boosh, boosh, boosh. Boosh.